Amen. Have a seat, everyone, and good morning to you. We are excited this morning. Uh, this begins our Difficult Questions series. So every year, every other year, we like to pass out these cards, and uh, you ask difficult questions about the Bible, church, Christian life. If enough of you ask the same question, we just scoop them all together and make a Sunday morning out of it, which is what we're doing this morning. This morning, you have asked several questions about the afterlife, which immediately got me thinking about the, the TV show, The Good Place, which is about the afterlife. So I thought, let's start from a clip from that in which uh, this girl has just died and she's shown up and she meets with Ted Danson, who is an afterlife intake administrator. (laughs) Yeah, let's see what it says. So who was right? I mean, about all of this. Well, let's see. Hindus are a little bit right. Muslims a little bit. Jews, Christians, Buddhists. Every religion guessed about 5%, except for Doug Forsett. Who's Doug Forsett? Well, Doug was a stoner kid who lived in Calgary during the 1970s. One night, he got really high on mushrooms, and his best friend, Randy, said, hey, what do you think happens after we die? And Doug just launched into this long monologue where he got like 92% correct. (laughs) We couldn't believe what we were hearing. That's him, actually, right up there. He's pretty famous around here. I'm very lucky to have that. All right. So, you know, not not a Christian show. But uh, clearly we don't believe that God has left us to guess, as they implied. Uh, we, We have scripture. And we believe scripture is one of God's best tools that he gives us to teach us about himself. And yet we're going to find this morning for the questions you're asking that... uh, Scripture has not spoken as clearly to all of them as we might wish, which is why it's a difficult question. Otherwise, it would be not a difficult question, right? So we're going to have to do three things this morning as we we try to address your questions. First of all, when the Bible speaks clearly, then we're going to try to speak clearly and just present what it says and expound upon that. Uh, But when the Scripture is less clear, maybe even ambiguous on a point, We're going to try to give the best interpretation that we can and let you know that that is what we're doing. And when scripture is silent on the question you have asked, then we're going to try to be silent also and admit that we don't know. But we do know this. If there is something about which God has not made any effort to give us any information, then that is not an answer that we are required to know or need to know to grow closer to him. We're free to be curious about it. That's great. We're going to be curious about it. But if God has made no effort to tell us, then that's not something we're held accountable to knowing in order to grow closer to him. So with that foundation, let's start in with the first of your difficult questions. First questioner asks, where do we go when we die before Jesus comes back as our king on earth? So uh, whoever has written this question, um, I want to say this person has a good grasp of God's plan for us. Uh, whoever wrote this is not envisioning a, a disembodied heaven where we're you know, just souls or balls of light throating, floating through clouds. Uh, whoever wrote this question is looking forward to uh, a resurrection, a resurrection and a return of, of Christ to be our king here on earth. All of scripture points toward this. So they've got a good handle and good Christian theology on this. What they're asking about is, 
Well, clearly folks have passed away and Christ has not yet returned to establish his kingdom. So what, do you happen, what happens there? They're asking about the in-between time. That is a great question. So there have been uh, a couple of dominant theories, uh, theologies in the Christian world for the, for the couple of millennia about that. One is that when you, ent- when you die, you enter into heaven. You enter into the place, the dimension, however you want to think of it, where, uh, where God is and live with him, awaiting the resurrection of the dead and the return of Christ. The second theory would be that when you die, your soul enters a state of sleep or a state of non-awareness and wakes up at the return of Christ to be reunited with the new resurrection body and his establishing of his kingdom. Now, in the past, in the past when presented with this question, I have said, there are scriptures which describe something that sounds like both of these scenarios. So in the past, I have said, you're free to pick between these two um, and, it, and it's going to be fine. In the end, they both end with the resurrection and Christ's kingdom. However, every time that you ask a question, even if I've dealt with it before, I try to go back and do some more reading, some more study. And this time I went back to all of those scriptures uh, that pertain to this. And I read them a little more slowly. And I want to say this morning, I no longer believe that the sleep, soul sleeping metaphor or model or picture is a good one. And I, I want to let you know why, why I've gone this way. So there are many times in Scripture when it qu- equates death with falling asleep, describes it as having fallen asleep. That's fine. Many Scriptures describe it that way. But uh, we're going to read some of them here. But when we read them, I don't actually think we're going to find any that say that the soul is asleep or that the soul is awaiting some future thing to happen. Um, that the, I don't think any of them say that this uh, person is not with the Lord. Um, here's what I think is happening with the fallen asleep language in Scripture. I believe that is a figure of speech that they used throughout biblical times to soften having to say what they would have considered a very crude phrase, he's dead. They consider that very impolite to to say it just like that. Actually, don't we? When one of our friends has passed away, I just said it right there. When one of our friends has passed away, we pat, we, what do we put all over social media? Our friend has passed away. Our friend has gone home. Our friend is now with God. Our friend is receiving their reward. Rarely do we ever just post, our friend's dead. So read these scriptures and see if it don't seem to pertain more to what's happening to their body, more of a softening figure of speech, and no mention of that their, their soul is not with God or not aware of where they are. Let's try 1 Kings chapter 2. Then David slept with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. Really more about his body than anything to do with the soul. Matthew 27. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. It's more about that their bodies were asleep and are now raised. The resurrection, the first fruits of the resurrection happening at the same time as Jesus' resurrection. John 11. After saying this, Jesus told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, 
Lazarus is dead. So that's exactly what we just thought was happening. That Jesus was saying, oh, Lazarus has fallen asleep to try to be polite. The disciples totally misunderstand the word picture. He's like, he's asleep, he'll be fine. So then Jesus has to be like, no, guys, he's dead. Like he has to come out and say it bluntly. Jesus said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. More about Jesus saying, in my hands, sleep, a death is just like sleep. I can wake you up from it. I have the power of resurrection. Not so much about her soul not being somewhere. So I'm not as excited about that model anymore. Now, do we have scriptures for the other view, the one that when you die, you go to be in the presence of Christ Jesus? We do. Here are a few. Uh, The Apostle Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians says, So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Paul has this, a picture that when you're away from your body, then you're present with the Lord. And we're going to ha- see that again from Paul in a moment. But I want to go next to uh, on the day Jesus was crucified. The criminal, criminal next to him proclaims him Lord and Savior. And the criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. And our third one from the Apostle Paul, now he's in prison, he's an old man, he's starting to wonder, do I want to keep doing this, preach, go to jail, preach, go to jail, or would I rather just, I'm old, can I just, maybe I'd just rather pass on. He's struggling, and he writes, for me, living is Christ, and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I don't know which I prefer. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. So he has this picture that if he passes on, he will be with Christ Jesus. If he lives, then he'll keep serving the Lord. So these scriptures show us that the people who were closest to Jesus imagined themselves to be in his presence when they died. So if we imagine ourselves to be in his presence When we die, we're in really good company. And of course, as the questioner writes, then comes the resurrection and the new heaven and the new earth and the reign of Jesus Christ. So, thank you to whoever wrote that question. Our second question is going to get us all theological. All right? So this is a good one. Here it goes. You wrote, angels fell, man fell. Because God gave us free will. Will there be free will in the new heaven and the new earth after the resurrection? All right, this is a great question. And whoever asks this, uh, you're going to get us real Presbyterian. That's good, that's good. We don't do that often enough. Some of you are like, we're Presbyterian? Yeah, all right. So here it comes, here it comes. First of all, uh, we're going to try to stick with just the Bible this morning. And so, uh, I can't address the first two words, the angels fell. Uh, How that happened is not something Scripture records. There are clearly fallen angels, but whatever happened to them has already happened by the time the Bible opens. 
The stories that you and I have grown up with about how there are demons and Lucifer was once the most beautiful angel and all of that sort of thing, that all comes from uh, Christian and Jewish mythology. It might be true, but we can't verify it from inspired scripture because those stories aren't recorded in our scriptures. So I can't speak to why angels fell. I could suspect, but that's the same thing this, this story you and I grew up with was doing. It sounds good enough to me for all I know about it. Now, humans falling, that is where the Bible starts. And that is recorded in Genesis chapter 3. But here's where I want to take an exception to uh, the way that you've written your question here. Humans didn't fall because God gave us free will. That would be like your kid saying, I shot my eye out because you bought me a Red Ryder BB gun. It doesn't follow automatically that if you buy your child a Red Ryder BB gun, they're going to shoot their eye out. It's because of what you do with the gift that you're given, that your eye gets shot out. So humans fell into sin because of what we did with the gift of free will we were given. God gave us the gift so that we could choose to follow him, and thus the love between us would be real love. But we chose sin instead. That's the cost of having the possibility of real love, is having the possibility that you could have not love. Just like the the cost of the fun of shooting cans with a Red Ryder BB gun, is it could also ricochet off an icicle and shoot you in the eye. So, God gave us free will, Without free will, you can't really do good or do evil. You can just run off of a program and you're not responsible for what happens. So all of this comes right out of the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 9, the document which guides Presbyterians. Thank you, Scotland. So it wasn't free will that caused us to fall. It was what we did with it. It was free will that let us love and there is an opposite to love. So the questioner asks, will there be free will in the new heaven? I think absolutely. And it will be perfected by Christ Jesus. God created free will so that his, this world would be filled with this powerful thing that flows constantly from him, love. And love is most powerful when it's given and received and given and received in an endless cycle. Now, we have wrecked all that by choosing sin instead. And each of us wrecks it continually by always managing to choose one sin or another. But Jesus comes to save us from the power of sin. And he promises at the coming of his kingdom to perfect us so that our free will will at last be used for only one thing, To glorify God and enjoy him forever. But our questioner is just a little bit suspicious. If you have the new heaven and you still have free will. Isn't the door open just a crack. For sin to come back in and destroy the whole thing a second time. And the answer to that is yes. And that's the beauty of God's coming kingdom because we finally realize that all goodness comes from God. We use our free will only for what it was meant for. 
If God takes free will away just to make 100% sure that sin can never enter again, then we also aren't human anymore. Everyone, science fiction has already explored this question with you dozens of times. Learn from Rod Serling, right? You, you saw it. The robots, the body snatchers, the aliens, they come and they take over the people. And, they, they, and what do they do? What's their first speech they give? Look at how we've improved your world. We got rid of war and famine and disease all in 24 hours, something you couldn't do in however many years. But what's the theme of the movie? But we're not human anymore. In the end, it's always more worth it to have the choice to love than to have all that stripped away. Because the world this creates has no goodness in it either. It has no beauty in it either. It just is orderly. And that's forced. So absolutely there will be free will in heaven because there will be love in heaven. But there will not be sin because all wills in heaven are submitted to God. That's how you get there. I'm just using my imagination here, but I imagine all of the all of the the weapons and tools of our past sins kind of laid out on tables in heaven like a museum to remind us of what we used to be and what Jesus Christ has conquered. And there's no ropes around them. There's no glass over them. They just sit out there and no one ever picks them up again. Thank you, whoever whoever asked that question. Another of you asked this. Does God keep working in you after death? Can you still be saved? I believe you're trying to write one question here, but I want to treat this as two questions. Question one, does God keep working in you after death? Question two, can you still be saved? If if you'll indulge me in that. So question one, does God keep working in you after death? I absolutely believe that. I believe that God keeps perfecting us, keeps teaching us things about ourselves and about himself, about this world and the universe. I think you can know God for eternity and constantly be saying, I never knew that about you. I never knew that's how that worked. Oh, that's why we do that sort of thing. I, how, do I, how do I not know this already? And that, the beauty of that relationship, I believe, goes on for eternity because God is so vast. I believe being saved is something that happens to us and keeps happening to us. In fact, the Greek of the New Testament uh, is actually saying that. Greek, the language the New Testament was written in, has a verb tense that we don't have in English very well. If it was properly translated, it would sound very clumsy. But here's what it would sound like. All the phrases in the Bible where it says, for those of you who have been saved, if they were really literally translated, it would be really clunky, but it would say this every time. For those of you who have been and are being saved. For those of you who have been and are being saved. An event that has a beginning and then continues. An event that has a beginning and then then continues. It was on a May night, 1994, at the end of my rope that I sat in bed and I said, God, I give you all the the keys of my key ring of life. I, I, I can't do this. I've made a mess of everything. Everything I tried to fix, I made worse. If you know how to do better with my life, I want you to do that and I will follow you. 
and, and you know, so here's the keys of my life. The beginning. A few years later, I got married, and I found out that I had a selfishness key still stashed in my person. <laughs> the ring is still in your pocket. And so God used marriage to begin to save me from this selfishness key. And then I got into ministry in the church and I ne- learned that I had a key called need for attention and affirmation stashed right here in my breast pocket, close to my heart. God uses the church and the ministry and his wonderful humiliations to begin to, d- to take that key of needing affirmation. I mean, still send me those pastor appreciation cards during that week in October. <laughs> But my, my, my need, my lust for that, he's trying to save me from that. Good, okay, now God finally has all the keys. And then I had children. I learned I had a whole ring of control keys, need to be in control, hidden in my shoe. And, and God's got nothing better than kids to show you, you are not in control. And so, and so he's prying those out. And now I realize I've got keys stashed all over myself. That May night have been saved was just the beginning, are being saved. I believe for all eternity, God's going to be patting me down, saying, hey, what's this one, big guy? (laughs) A continuous action with a start. So, yes, I believe we will be saved more and more for all eternity. God is taking us on a journey. For some of you, it has begun. For some of you, it may begin today, but it will go on forever. Now, I bet that's not entirely what you were asking when you added the second part, can you still be saved? I'll bet this question you're asking, can you reject or ignore God in this life and after death be saved and start your relationship and your journey with Christ from more or less zero after death onward? There's a lot of reasons why someone may ask a question like that. Uh, Maybe you're worried about the eternal destiny of someone that you know who has died or may die in a state of not being with Christ. Maybe you're unclear about the existence of God yourself, and so you're wanting to take kind of a wait-and-see approach, where you kind of just do what you want, what feels natural now, and then if you die and see that God is in fact real, then of course, you know, I'll I'll get started. Um, There are actually different answers I would give if I knew why this question was important to you, different things I would emphasize. So if you wrote this question, or you could have written this question, I'd love to have a conversation before the summer gets too old. Um, because I'd, there's, there, depending on why this question is important to you, I would emphasize different things about who God is and, and who we are and what he wants for us. But, uh, but I can't get at that information today. So I'm just going to have to kind of answer this question as is. Can you be saved, still be saved after death? And I'm, I'm just going to answer those by reading some scriptures and letting us all hear them together. I'll start with Hebrews chapter 9. And just as it is appointed for mortals to die once, and after that to judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This passage says that you have this life to choose Christ, and when he returns, he returns to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He doesn't come to to deal with sin a second time or start making new offerings. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, you evildoers. This passage says that we have this life to understand that it is about knowing Christ and being known by him. It's not about running off doing spectacular religious stuff. It's about knowing Christ and being known by him. And that at his return, Christ is going to return. And some will say, oh, I did all kinds of super religious stuff. I, was, I cast out demons. I did spectacular things. I never knew you. You never came around. We never talked. Yeah, but I did, I did, I did a lot of cool stuff. I had a TV show. We have this life to know it's about a relationship with him. John 5. Do not be astonished at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And Luke 16, Jesus tells this story. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. And we really don't get that because in the West we love dogs. But in the Middle East they hate dogs. So if you're having dogs come up and lick your sores, that's not a good life. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. This guy still doesn't get it. He still wants the poor man to come serve him. Hey, send that guy over to... Well, anyways... But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he's comforted here, and and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them, so that they'll not also come into this place of torment. But Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And of course, Jesus proves this true because he has risen from the dead and still we're having questions about folks who don't believe. This is our most important story from Jesus because it tells us that we may protest that God has not given us enough information to make this decision for him. But God feels like he has. He's given us Moses. He's given us the prophets. He's given us the resurrection of Jesus. And if these don't convince us, nothing really will. I can imagine someone saying, well, if I saw God face to face, that would convince me. But I'm telling you that it wouldn't. 
I'm telling you that it is shocking what people can see and experience in their own life and then later deny, explain away, or just forget. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, This sanctuary could be filled three times with the people who have come here just since I've been a pastor, having had a miraculous experience, having come in here in awe and ready to follow God. And I'm telling you that most of those people wandered off after two or three Sundays. God would have to appear to them continuously every 14 days to sustain the type of faith that they had. Read the Gospel of John and see that the whole point comes to a head when he says, Blessed are you who have not seen and yet believe. Because seeing Jesus do miracles doesn't make as much difference as you may think it would. And then he shows us in the Gospel of John seven miracles that Jesus did. And after each one he says, And many believed and some did not. Blessed are you who have not seen and yet believe. I want to add this on top of that to think about. Once you've seen God face to face, you get your wish. Once you see God face to face, do you really love him or are you now just afraid of him? After you see God face to face, would you really say, nah, I'm going to be a Buddhist. I think it's better. Really. After you've seen the creator of the universe and Jesus at his side, what else would you do? How would you even know if you love God? Somebody said, hey, you saw God. Yeah. Do you love him? Oh, yeah. Do you, I mean, do you really love him? I, I mean, he's big. Really? It's hard for us to even know at that point. Do we love him because he first loved us or just because he's almighty? God has set it up the way we're experiencing it right now to maximize love. He's just hidden enough to keep us honest. Right now, if you love God, it's probably really love but he's just revealed enough that it's not a blind faith, something we completely have to talk ourselves into. It's just enough. And you have this day to decide how to respond to that offer. And one more important item, I think. Aren't all of your real relationships like this? Don't they, all your relationships, don't they start with a little bit of mystery. I've been married to my wife for 22 years now. And, and just, uh, just a couple months ago, she told me this pretty significant story from her childhood. And I'm like, how did I not ever hear that before? Just a couple weeks ago, I found out there's this food she doesn't like, which I'm pretty sure I have bought for her before. <laughs> how did I know you didn't like that? You know, she's just a constant well of, of new and amazing stories. And yet, married 22 years, I don't know all the secrets yet. Yet to get married to her, I had to know even less than I knew and and go on some dates. In our culture, I had to go on some dates. And before that, I had to say hello. This is how all of our relationships begin with mystery. No one gets to say, I'm not even saying hello to that man until I know all his secrets. I know what he's all about. I know, uh, I know that he's for real. I'm not even going to ask that girl out until I know it all. Give me the whole picture. No relationship works that way. Not, not one. 
Why do we think our relationship with God will be any different? Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to walk with God until I know he's real. I know what he's about. I see everything he's going to do. I, I know it all. I need to have clarity. You don't require clarity in any other relationship. Why do you require it in this one? It's probably going to start like all the others. Uh, God, I don't know you that well. I actually don't even know if you're real. But why don't we spend some time together and see what happens? Thank you to whoever asked that question. Our final question for the morning. Can people who are in heaven know what's going on here on earth? This is another question where I'd lo- I'd love to hear why this is important to you. It would probably, you know, help me say some things. So if you could have written that, I'd love to have a conversation where we can you can email or, or whatever, um, just to hear where that's coming from. But again, don't have that information. I'm just going to take it as it is and say that the Bible is pretty much silent on this matter. Uh, what we know or what we don't know uh, uh, after we pass on about what's you know, going on in this life and our world, the Bible doesn't speak to that. Sometimes I would like my, my grandpa to be able to see uh, my kids and how like him they are in some ways. Uh, but when I'm fixing something around the house, I really hope that he cannot see that because he was really good at that sort of thing and I have no real skills to speak of. I'll say this. If those who have passed on can see us, they see us with a new eyes and a new perspective. They now see perfectly what is important and what isn't important. They, if they see us, they sit in the forgiveness of Christ Jesus. And so as they see us, they're remembering all the mistakes that they made and things that Christ has forgiven as they're seeing and understanding all the mistakes that we're making. And this is most important If they see us, they know Christ is king. And they would not want us to focus on them. They would want us to be focused on Christ Jesus. I can tell you the time or two that I thought I might die. My only concern was that my wife and children continue with Christ in my absence. I did not want them to try to please me or do something dad would have approved of. At this point, I'm not even sure that things dad thinks he approves of are really all that great. I wanted them to go on living for Christ because I knew he would take care of them and always do right by them. If our loved ones see us, they have an even better version of that perspective. So let's close today in Scripture. Uh, Many of you have had some great questions here about heaven. Some the Bible spoke to, some it did not. So I want to share with you, I've done this before, I want to share with you a paraphrase of everything Jesus said in the Bible about heaven. So these are paraphrasings of everything Jesus said in the entire New Testament about heaven. These are words we can trust because they come from our Savior's own lips. Here they are. That the highway to heaven can only be entered by a narrow gate, but all the powers of hell cannot destroy that gate. Jesus describes heaven as a kingdom where God is king. And he tells us it is near. 
He says it is the thing we need, and we are blessed if we know that. It belongs to those who are persecuted for doing the right thing. There is greatness there for those who follow God's law. Uptight religious leaders who are hung up on legalism won't be there. It's for people who have the strength to love their enemies. It's for those who did their good deeds quietly. It's the place where God's will is done, and our world should be more like that. It's filled with angels, angels who watch over children, angels who praise God, angels who strengthen the weak, and angels who will someday gather all the citizens of heaven from all over the world, even though the angels themselves don't know when they're going to be doing that. Jesus is in heaven now, seated at God's right hand. Jesus himself will be the stairway to heaven. It's a treasure house where your reward for looking to the things of God instead of worrying about houses and clothes and dinner is waiting for you. And when you give to the poor, your account in heaven grows. Some very religious people will be surprised when they aren't there. And we'll all be surprised how many people from all over the world are there. It's for people who stand up and acknowledge Jesus as their Lord when it could get you into trouble. Many of you are already citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's the place where the most unnoticed person is considered greater than the greatest, most famous prophet of scripture. Heaven is coming to us forcefully, and some people are trying to fight to hold it back. It's filled with secrets not yet revealed to us. Heaven fights for our attention against the hot winds of suffering, against the crows of Satan's lies, against the thorns of our constant desire to be rich. Heaven is a tiny mustard seed of an idea that grows into a kingdom with room for everybody. It's a fishnet thrown over the world that catches fish of every kind. It's like yeast in a lump of dough. It changes every part of the world into something beautiful, yet you can't see how it does it. The best bread comes from heaven, and Jesus is the bread from heaven, and anyone who eats this bread will never die. Heaven is a treasure hidden in a field. It's a choice pearl. If you have a chance at it, you should sell everything you have to get it. It's a purse that never wears out and never gets a hole in it. To have the keys of heaven, simply know that Christ is the Son of the living God. It's not for the proud, but for those who are as humble and dependent as children. The church is our link to heaven until he comes. Heaven is a bank canceling our debts and telling us to forgive others. Heaven is for children. Heaven is a place that it's next to impossible for rich people to enter because they are addicted to their stuff and the artificial security it creates. But what is impossible for people is possible with God. There is a fire and burning sulfur in heaven that waits to fall on the wicked. Heaven is open until the last of the forgotten has had a chance to come in. Heaven is a party, and everyone is invited, but astoundingly, not everyone wants to come. And when a sinner turns their life around and shows up, the party blows up like a supernova. Some preachers try to slam the door of heaven in people's faces, but Jesus is coming again, and he's bringing heaven with him. Heaven is coming when we least expect it, so keep your lamp lit Keep doing the work God has given you. Its morning light is just about to break upon us. There is peace in heaven, and all truth comes from there. In fact, everything good comes from there. No one has ever received anything good that wasn't shipped from warehouses in heaven. Heaven is built on the word of Christ, a foundation so strong that even if heaven disappeared, that word would remain. And that is everything Jesus said about heaven. Amen.